and welcome to the Temple of Blair, episode AC. This is a conversation with Stefan Costa. Uh, Stefan headed up the international marketing arm of Roadrunner from 1990, well, in the mid 1990s to 2001, but he was with the company from about 1992. So this one's fucking brilliant, dude. I mean, every single word that comes out of Stefan's mouth was like new information for me. And it really helps me sort of appreciate some of the finer aspects of the label's functions. This this particular conversation, I feel, is a milestone for me because the sense that Case wanted X, therefore X was delivered, is slowly departing and it's becoming more of a Case created a ragtag group of people who were so hungry for Rodoran to be successful, we delivered X. And that particular angle is completely critical to this project as a whole and as to why Roadrunner is such a special place. So, without further ado, let's jump into it. One, two, fuck shit up. You know, I joined Roadrunner. Um, it was one of those things where I had had some um, experiences in the in the in the field of you know music and uh, promotion marketing stuff like that, but at a label that was the just absolute opposite genre wise of of what Roadrunner was, mm-hmm. um, which was a, a, a label in Cologne um, called Vera Bra. It was uh, jazz and world music. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you could say that when I moved over to uh, Roadrunner, um, Sepultura was certainly a, a certain type of uh, world music, right? Yeah, but yeah. it was super heavy, and um, I, um, you know, had little understanding at the beginning, right? But, you know, many of us um, that worked there as young, you know, individuals, didn't have the overall picture of what was going to happen to this label or what could potentially happen to this label yeah. just because we uh, didn't have the, the knowledge base. We were all just like working, working, working. It was fun. It was exciting. You know, back then being part of um, um, a record label was um, something your, your, your friends were like, whoa, mm. you know, it's like, that's exciting, right? Because it was different from, just going to work nine to five. I mean, yeah, yeah. it also obviously came as a at a price because you were working so hard and so nonstop every mm-hmm. day, weekends included for me often, you know, that a lot of personal stuff just fell off the, uh, the kitchen table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But it was exciting. And it was exciting to grow with the company and to step-by-step, step, um, get a better understanding of what kind of a rocket ship we were actually on because mm. that's what it turned into. You know, for me, especially like doing, you know, international, step-by-step-by-step um, by step by step with every you know, move that I made, it just, the picture got bigger. And my understanding of what was, you know, happening was growing. So that I thought was like super exciting. And it, I mean, look, it got me, from you know Cologne, Germany, via Amsterdam to um, New York. Well, I think I'm going to try and I'm trying to revise the mission statement of this project because I try and introduce people to it and and try and get build a runway for us to take off from. I've regaled you with all like previous videos and the documentary and stuff like that, but really the the question I always ask is like why was Roadrunner so special? We know what the answer is. 
We know the answer is it, it was a special brand and it was kind of, it was built off the backs of like a room full of metalheads built by a businessman. And that was the infrastructure. But for me, if I contextualize it against what we were saying earlier in terms of identity, in terms of like communication and, and information dissemination, um, these days we're coming out of this weird era of oversaturation. We've had like 10 years of Spotify and YouTube having all the labels in a chokehold. So it was difficult to really navigate musical waters. Now it's getting a little bit easier. And I think in the last nine years, we've realized what we've lost with Roadrunner. I think we sort of now, and I, I think, because no one's talked about the history of the label, but I think it's important for a number of reasons mostly because what Roadrunner did was it took the fringest of the fringe and not only made it commercially viable, but it went toe-to-toe with the majors in a really, really um, boring time for, for music. And when I say that, I mean the Simon Cowell era. He's trying to get his foot in the door with his era of algorithmically generated um, hits when there's nine nut jobs in jumpsuits selling platinum records. Yeah, we as metalheads don't care about sales at all, but we do care about knocking people down a peg, and that's why Roadrunner is important because it was the vehicle for that to happen. And this entire project is about trying to understand and reverse engineer what happened within those four walls in those six, seven, eight offices, whatever it was, and try and hopefully take some learnings for today so we can sort of navigate navigate going forward. That's the end game. And so that's why I'm dragging people from all four corners of the world and disturbing their work days. Um, well, for me, I would say, you know, I've, I've always maintained this. I think that Case's insistence on um, starting um, offices in different countries with, you know, many times just an individual person, a single person that um, was, you know, that, that he picked, that he selected, that then went out and, and began to work the um, the music that we had, the artists that we had, and grow the company. I mean, um, you know, when I came into the German office as the as the general manager, I was replacing um, someone called Frank Ströbele, mm-hmm. who um, um, went to Amsterdam. So. That's how I came in, in, I think it was the end of 91, beginning of 92, yeah, in that, in that range. What um, was the recruitment process like? If, we, if, we, if we're going to the start, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the usual gambit. So how were you initially selected? Oh, for it's the- very, very um, uh, interesting. Um, I was asked by um, Frank, who had made, um, um, who knew someone at the um, company that I was working for at the time, and, um, you know, they approached me and were saying, like, listen, we got this call. I don't know if you want to do this, but call this number. And so I spoke to Frank and I was just like, OK, let's just like, you know, meet up. And I get to the um, office and in the office is Case Vessels and Frank. Yeah. We're in a room talking. Um, Case is asking um, a lot of questions. You know, he's got his, um, his cup of tea in front of him. <laughs> That he uh, always had. And um, I remember that, you know, he said at some point, he said, um, how's your English? And I said, fine. You know, he said, can we can we have this conversation in English? Can we continue in English? And I was just like, yes, of course. You know, and then we went on and, and just discussed it in English. Background to that is my dad was German military and I grew up 
over you know an on and off period in total of six six um, years total there in El Paso, Texas, of all places. Wow. Yeah? yeah, big military base. So my English was fluent. Yeah, and I think that's what sealed the deal right away. It was super easy for them. I had some background in the music business. I knew what you know certain things were. Um, Frank could go on to um, um, Amsterdam, and I started in an office that probably had five or six people. Right. So the office in Cologne was um, established. Had you know personnel people that I remember from from that time in that office were. Um, Heidi Hübner and Jana Kosseer and um, Hank Hacker. I think Torge Berger was in there as well when I when I got there. And I might, you know, forget some people here and there. But, you know, when when I moved away from Cologne to Amsterdam, it was Hank that took over that office. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, very, very interesting to... To work there, and at the beginning, like with every new job, you're trying to just be, you know, um, a team player and to do everything the right way. And I, you know, back then it was the time where we were still working with fax machines, right? And for each release, I had to get approval for the marketing plan and the expenditures from Case directly, right? So you, I mean, I was sweating bullets, like you know, coming up with the right numbers, right? And and um, um, sending it out to him and, and receiving a, a fax in return where he was either like, you know, this is nonsense or, you know, yep, let's go. And you had to then, um, you know, work. It was a very structured um, environment that case um, um, had created. Yeah. So okay. it was very much a, you know, we were one of multiple European offices, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we were all working together. And I think for, the artists that then came through, this was like paradise. It was like being in a, you know, at a major and not being at a major, right? It was very often that we were all like the same age. Yeah, the yeah. people that worked there, um, promoting, you know, the music, marketing, all that stuff. We had like an infrastructure. Yeah. Magazines were there, right? Um, we had great distribution through um, at that time intercourt yeah? yeah um we were able to you know roadrunner as a label and roadrunner as a as a brand was in that sweet spot where it was no matter what we put out you know it sold by that i mean it sold in thousands of i mean completely unknown artists that people had never seen or or um heard of you know i think you so, came in at a super interesting time as well because 92 is when they just start their expansion from thrash and uh, thrash and death and into more sort of contemporary it's some in some ways contemporary but definitely alternative music with things like grunge truck and a few years later say blue mountain state and things like that not blue mountain state blue oh don't forget valtari finnish group that we this is another really important thing right mm -hmm. um all these companies um case was very very keenly interested right from the get-go in um having um in signing local local acts yeah yeah so i remember we saw we had like you know um a band from stuttgart called atrocity Walter, yeah. sorry yes yeah and um Valtteri were these 
crazy Finnish guys that had death metal guitars. Um, but I mean, if, if you're interested, look up um, Valtteri's um, cover version of Vogue by Madonna at that time. <laughs> it was crazy stuff, right? Um, but everybody had this is it, it was a it was so unregimented in in the artistic sense that mm. everything you know was was possible um obviously at a you know price point that case was comfortable with mm-hmm. and um it was just i mean it was we were talking to so many artists in germany um and i know that you know stefan sonier in france was talking to french artists like yeah. mark palmer was talking to um, people in the in the UK, you know, um, the guys in the Benelux office were were doing. I mean, look, that was the time too of, um, well, that came a little bit later, but um, Mokum Mokum records, mm-hmm. yeah, with uh, Fred Burkow, um, mm-hmm. who um, you know started that and, and ran that. But that was, you know, that was a crazy dance hardcore dance scene in in Amsterdam, right? But it worked really well with i mean you know great hits at that point so step by step by step we were coming into this whole thing and i remember like one of the first things in germany that we that we charted um was biohazard yeah yeah i had this bet going with case case was like you're never gonna chart this and i said oh yeah we i mean it's well prepared you know we've got everybody on board and it is going to happen and he (laughs) was like incredulous he was just like no way right and then we did chart. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It worked out because it was, you know, the personal relationships that you begin to develop with the you know, distributors are extremely important because those are the people that are, you know, at the end of the day, out there selling. And, and you know, they were very much still out there as individuals, mm-hmm. the salespeople, going from store to store or chain to chain to, to put our product into these stores. And the better your relationship with these people, the more you could get out of it. it That's was, where our it friend uh, Alan Becker comes in. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you know, Rodan has been with Alan. Um, I mean, I, I, I saw like Brian's, I, I was watching Brian's piece uh, that you did with him, um, mm-hmm. Brian Slagel, this yep. morning. And um, yeah, I mean, it's the same story. It's like, you know, Alan Becker is, um, gee, he was there right at the beginning um, as, you know, as Red and, uh, you know, now at the Orchard. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still working with Alan to this day, you know, with the stuff that I do now, you know. Um, so that time, the thing I'd like to know, and I don't know if you can tell me this, at some point Case did say, okay, we've done well with Sepultura and we've done well with Obituary and we started this whole Florida death metal scene. Now we do need to expand. I want to know what the catalyst for that is. And I think it links into what you were saying earlier in terms of the structure he's very he's, he's, he's treating his independent outfit like a major in terms of the money they're spending and also in terms of the opportunities they're trying to propagate and all the risks they're trying to mitigate and i think what might have, again pure speculation you can tell me if i'm wrong is it just felt like time for case before we get um compartmentalized as a thrash and death metal label let's just take the chance now to explode over here and see how that goes and then maybe find some opportunities. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he, but but that is the um, the the beauty about you know this whole this this label that there were so many different aspects to it, and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And as the companies um, individually and jointly 
got better at what they were doing, it, it attracted more, you know, of the artistic talent. Every mm. people yeah. were coming to you then at that point and going like, Hey, you know, what, what if, right. And that obviously changes the game because then, you know, the tables are turned in a way. If, if you have, you know, people coming and, and asking about, it, you know, um, so I think the, I mean, it was the diversity of music. I mean, one of the biggest things for me back in those days was um, a band called Doggy Dog. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Doggy Dog is such a special thing because we were able to, MTV was, was massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. MTV Europe was massive. And we, there was one year where we um, um, basically got them to all of our surprise um, to become the um, breakthrough artist of the year in Europe. Yep. At the same time where the U.S. office couldn't, you know, sell the records, even if you paid them for it, because the band wasn't as meaningful over here. And these guys, I mean, you know, I felt really, really bad for them because they were playing massive tours in Europe. Um, mm. They were... Dynamo, um, fest, you know, all that stuff where you have a hundred thousand people just going completely nuts and 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 and, and bouncing up and down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then you come back to the U.S. and of course, for all these musicians, it's just like at some point they want to um, be able to show, you know, their parents, their friends, how meaningful this is, um, what they're doing, right? Yeah, and to um, invite them. But if your market is on the other side of the Atlantic, it just gets a little bit more difficult, you know? Do you think that is something that the satellite offices, I call them the satellite offices, they're obviously their own independent, their own outfits in their own right. But do you think that was a growing pain, understanding that those different territories are completely different? And I say this with experience speaking with some of the UK Roadrunner guys, um, there was an expectation to try and sign the next Oasis or something like that, but there just wasn't the the one the resources to do it as much as the other labels in the area. So it was really difficult for, say, Andy Saunders or Miles Leonard to go out and say, "This indie band is the great, the next great thing," or this sort of British mm-hmm. doggy dog or whatever. Was that a was that recognised as a problem? Or was it just, no, we're just going to go, we're going to cast the net nice and wide and we'll just see what happens. I think it was the latter. Yeah. Um, Just cast the net wide and just, um, you know, it had to have some kind of connection to, uh, you know, the Roadrunner core, but the core changed too. Yeah. It wasn't um, a, um, a, a, it wasn't a static thing. Um, and as, you know, more and more music came in and as we were successful with individual artists in, in their home territories, because they were signed for that specific purpose. Yeah. Um, sure, if you have an, um, a, a European act, like a French act, um, a German act, a, a Dutch act, um, and you are a um, company that has both feet in the US as well as in Europe, um, then you're hoping that, you know, you can make that transatlantic trip maybe and, and, and yeah. become someone um, somewhere. But that's usually not how it worked for European artists um, um, coming over to the U.S. It was the other way around. The, the uh, New York office was 
out of the A&R source for everything mm-hmm. of, of the big artists like Monty, you know, yeah. um, how we get her, um, all these guys um, that were, you know, the A&R side. And on the European side, I think we were, um, let's say at the beginning, more commercially successful with the, with the music that was given to us. Yeah. And to exploit it. And it took, you know, a while for the U.S. office to um, catch up. Um, but, you know, obviously once once they did, it just like took off like a rocket. Mm. Yeah. We get, we're, we're moving into terraces. Everything I really want to talk about, but I have got some questions. I tried to keep it somewhat chronologically. However, we're on we're into like an area which I wanted to talk about. So I want to ask you two sort of questions about the international market and in and in terms of the the strong arms of Roadrunner as a whole. Then I'll move it back to the, the actual questions. So in the spirit of certain territories having certain strengths and sometimes that having some discord against um <clears throat> against the US, did you have any input in Japan? You will have, you will have see where I'm getting at with the Brian conversation this morning. Yeah, no, not the Japanese thing was always cases direct baby. We had once we started having international meetings, which which took a lot of you know of years until we got to that point. We had a um, um, a Japanese colleague. Um, I believe his name was Shusuke Kawahara. Yeah, oh and um, Shusuke came i met shiska first time at an international um uh, meeting that we had i think in amsterdam somewhere and um the problem there was that communication was very very difficult um english you know he was uh, trying his his utmost and of course none of us spoke of of any uh, japanese or whatnot you sometimes almost felt that in order to to get them onto the same um you know, um, onto the same team, you would have needed a translator. Yeah. Mm. Um, but the Japanese market was so far away. Yeah. Um, Case um, um, loves Japan. I think that is is something that I can I can say from knowing him. Um, you know, he was a great collector together with his wife of you know Japanese woodblock prints, and um, you know they have a very very specialized museum in Amsterdam. The Japanese ambassador to to the Netherlands was was at the opening, right? It was yeah. a, it's a really he case collected and his wife they collected a certain style um, that was not because uh, again they were ahead of the curve, right? But he loved to travel to Japan at least once a year, mm-hmm. um, spend some time there. The Japanese market to me was just indecipherable. I could yeah. not make sense of it. And I think it had a lot to do with, um, at that point, um, Japanese, you know, culture, business culture, and language. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting. I think um, another thing about the, I was saying this with Brian. I think there's a a very specific kind of market. They like tangible things, as in they like they're not going to settle for um, streaming. It's not going to be quite as viable. But there's also a virtuosity to that market which is yeah. why my, my Friedman does really well over there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there are, you know, artists that have always done well up there and, and you go like, how can that be, right? But mm. it is. I know the case had a, um, um, a consultant over there um, who was a 
Dutchman who had lived there who spoke Japanese. Um, right. So he was very much um, understanding of the, the cultural aspects of doing business over there. And so I think there was a direct connection there that Case used um, um, from Amsterdam whenever mm -hmm. he needed to uh, get something done in, in Japan. And Shuske was, you know, the guy who ran the office. And I'm sure that there were other people that worked there. Mm -hmm. And um, Shuske was a great guy, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, I just find it fascinating. And with Case as well, you mentioned the art stuff. There's two, two I'll call them cultural exports from Japan, which I think made their, made their presence in Roadrunner. One was that Roadrunner licensed to the Far East Metal Syndicate which <clears throat> from what I can gather was like one of the only metal labels in Japan at the time. Yeah. I don't know who else managed to get the records out there, but I think Roadrunner was the link in the chain. You get Neat, you get Metal Blade, you get SPV, you'd get whoever. Yeah. They'd license something out to Roadrunner and then Roadrunner would do the lifting and get it out to Japan. And I think that's really, really fascinating. I, I'd love to know, I'd love to know if there's some Japanese metal fans out there who are like, Oh yeah, we've got all our, our records from the various metal syndicate. This great band, Merciful Fate. This great band, Satan. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the second thing was um, the Slimline Roadrunner collection, which is some of the first CDs ever produced, um, or at least first metal CDs were Roadrunner CDs from Japan. I can see why, because Case is obviously going over there, and he obviously loves the culture, and he's an innovator in himself. Yeah. yeah. So technology, you know, everything. It was. It was. You know. Uh, think about back in those days it was like sony was a big technology company um first and foremost you know and um um then just you know gradually went into um all these other things and look I've, i was you know i've been listening to some of your podcasts and and mm -hmm. one thing that you make um that that you always talk about is the fact that you know case when he really started this was what 35 36 years old um, very, very knowledgeable. I'm sorry. He's 41. I've now developed my uh, my knowledge. Okay, in that so area. you've got your timeline. There you go. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yes, absolutely. With his experience and and his background and everything that he had done previously, he was absolutely primed to um, be successful um, with this uh, with his company and and um, what he was doing. The licensing part at the beginning and then. Um, uh, you know, just uh, uh, growing these companies. To me, I mean, the, the the stroke of genius is opening these offices, yeah, um, because that gave you so much more control over those markets than other companies would ever have, because you were part of the local, you know, scene. I was going to say, let's unpack that. Let's try and decipher a before scenario and an after scenario, because in my head. Why? I mean, I guess the, the I guess it's pennies, isn't it? That's the difference. Because if you don't have an office in the United Kingdom, what are you going to do? You're going to license your albums out to Neat Records, to um, Music for Nations, and they're going to do sure. the job for you, and maybe you lose pennies. But if you have an office there, you have a direct A&R. Um, you are a direct A&R competitor, and if, if you can smell blood, you can jump on there before Martin Hooker, and you can jump on there before Dave Hill. Um, is that the only well, difference? I don't think so let me interrupt you there. I don't think it's the difference is not pennies. Yeah. Cool. The, dif the difference is a lot more than just pennies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, licensing stuff out um, and, and, um, and, and having, you know, 
um, as a licensor, to, you know, you're, you're dealing with your dist- uh, distributor, um, you have to have product flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very important um, scenario. So licensing material from others is a way of filling the gaps with your own signings, with your own releases, your own records. Because, I mean, don't forget, it's, it's no company starts and has a roster of 50 artists that are established on their you know, fifth album. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, with a track record, you start off, you know, signing a, a band here, a band there, a band there, and it grows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you still have holes because you cannot, from a business point of view, dictate to an artist when he has to deliver um, a record mm-hmm. to suit your timeline as a company to have something that's like nice and round and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to fill gaps in your um, release schedule. And the, the licensing part is, um, um, you know, what? No, it's, it, I, my second sort of big question before I go on to normal questions was an epiphany about the licensing. It was, a, it was something that struck me last night that changed the entire way I see how the label's trying to position itself. And you just added a cherry on top to that epiphany. So keep going. <laughs> Very good. So it is, it fills holds in your release schedule yeah um you might find that your top sellers are all bunching up for you know towards the fall mm-hmm. of of a year um and uh, you know you know you're going to have an excellent excellent you know sales period at that time where you have maybe two or three really important releases coming but how do you handle the spring yeah um, and the, the licensing part is a very quick and easy um, piece that that falls into that, um, uh, you know, um, plugging the hole mm-hmm. scenario yeah. um, because your distributors, they want product flow. They want to have, you know, um, to, to take you seriously. And that's what we were, you know, aiming for. That's what we wanted. We wanted to give people... Um, you know, this, this business, of course, but we also wanted to be able to be in a position to, to, let's say not demand it's, it's like, that's, that's too strong of a word, but to um, have conversations and um, be um, prioritized within um, a distributor's system um, at a certain time. That's so cool. This I've written down product flow because I'm going to try and come back to that. Cause I'm, <laughs> this is like, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because it's, it's just understanding the strength of strategy in these kind of avenues. And I, I'm obviously, I'm not in the industry, so I don't know what, what the value is. And I think it's important to understand that. Um, if we're going to, if I'm going to fight the fight, which I'm going to fight, which is against oversaturation and learning what Roadrunner did, but I'll tell you what the big epiphany was. <clears throat> so, I always considered Roadrunner, his branding was on the strength of its direct signings, right? I always thought it was, oh, it's, it's, it's the Sepultura brand, it's the DSI brand, it's the Trivium brand, it's the Typo brand, it's all that stuff. And I always wondered, so what's the value of the licensing arm? Because it's so, it's so present. There's even an ad in Billboard, which I'll show you later, I might have already shown you, because you're on it, um, where Roadrunner is saying, we want to license your album in the United States. Here's the, our numbers from this year. Contact right. Stefan at Lafayette. And it's a, it's like half a page. So it's like, even all the way up to 2012, Roadrunner take licensing very seriously. 
Absolutely. very seriously. And I always wondered why, why would, and I thought it was because, right, well, if you can make the pennies, which you told me isn't pennies, if you can make the pennies, then you can keep the lights on while you invest in something risky. I thought that was the dynamic. And then I started thinking about corrosion and conformity because I love that band. I love them. Yeah. And they're often cited as a roadrunner band because, oh, we do great things with uh, corrosion and conformity. And there's other, band, other bands which fit that same kind of description. We do things with Motorhead. We do great things with Motorhead, Roadrunner. I'm like, well, hang on, Motorhead are a roadrunner band. They were signed to GNR. Hang on, Corrosion right. Conformity weren't a roadrunner band. They were signed to Metal Blade, then moved around a few other places. Maybe, was it, I can't remember. But they were a, a roadrunner direct signing. And then I realized... It's all about territorial branding because when the wall comes down in Berlin, you're probably wanting to have a good hardcore and punk brand. And yep. one way to do that is to license out. Make if some kid goes into a shop and sees corrosion or conformity, animosity, and it says Roadrunner on it, it's going to have a far more profound effect. It might even make you another fifty dollars over the next year against what another label might yep. do. That and it, to me, that was like, oh. Amazing. And you just said there, plus it's about the revenue flow. It's about the product flow and making sure you can cherry pick certain products to fill the May gap and fill the December gap. Absolutely. I mean, that's what, you know, a big chunk of going down to um, meet him every year. Um, South of France was, yeah. I mean, mm. meet him was this, 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 this big event um, in, in a just gorgeous setting. Um, you know, um, the temperatures were spring-like while, you know, in Amsterdam, you were like still like, you know, it was cold and rainy. Mm. Um, so um, it was always, you know, great to go you know, down to meet him. Um, but at meet him, um, you were having, you know, American business partners came over. You know, people were talking about, you know, I've got this, that, and the other. I remember having meetings with people um, in in a, either a hotel room or, um, you know, in, um, in an apartment that we then uh, rented, where you were literally just going through, they were giving you the tapes and you were listening to it or CDs at that point, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like, it went like, you know, no, 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 yes, yes, no, no. You know, it's just, that's where you picked up a lot of the product. I mean, obviously, you know, Case had um, well-established uh, relationships with, um um, with um, uh, people that, that he knew, and he was able to, and, and don't forget, back then too, which is a really important thing, I think. We, one of the big things for us was to coordinate, which was you know, a big piece of my job, to coordinate worldwide releases for our priority artists, mm -hmm. right? Which was something that, you know, I think we were one of the first ones that pulled that off um, outside of the major system. As in, when you say worldwide yeah. releases, you're meaning Sepultura Roots comes out March 30th everywhere, as opposed oh, to U.S. Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. And so many of these licensing deals, um, it might have, you know, what was so convenient about it often was that these were records that had already been released in parts, you know, um, yeah. maybe in the U.S. Um, so um, the artwork existed. You didn't have to wait for anything, right? It was just basically strike a deal. Here's the audio. Here's the um, artwork. Um, here's the master. Um, send it over, and we can start uh, production, right? Wow. Yeah. And then at that time, you um, that's how you can kind of fit it into your schedule, yeah, more so than into um, someone else's schedule. And, and at that point, it was still like, you know, it, the trafficking wasn't 
that intense yet. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it was Bertus, always Bertus, Bertus, Bertus. Bertus was always picking and, and trying to, you know, undercut you and, and, and whatnot in terms of getting stuff out before, you know, you, you had it uh, properly set up. But um, no, I mean, you know, there was, I mean, I'm just like looking at the same list here that you're um, showing um, the, the Discogs thing. I'm just looking for um, a specific release of, just to give you an idea, the Yellow Magic Orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's Ryushi Sakamoto, who then went on to, to do a lot of music for, um, um, with others. And, you know, that was a licensing deal. Mm. Yeah, we suddenly had three um, um, Yellow Magic Orchestra records. Don't, I mean, look, I had to read the bio. I didn't know who they were or what, mm. you know, what the story was. None of us knew. But it was, you know, okay, we'll plug the, we'll, we'll release that one here, then the next one there, and the next one there. And so you, you began to fill your, your timeline. For the so year. Many, there's a fr- the front end. Let's talk about the front end benefit to a licensing deal. Then, so we mentioned earlier. I t- I thought it was a difference of pennies, right? I thought like if you send your IP overseas and someone else licenses it for you, you're not ma- you're making pennies and not dollars. And similarly, if you're importing someone else's product and selling it, you're making more, but you're not making as much as if it was all your own stuff. Can you break down the difference? So let's 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 say corrosion well, licensing. A, a, a licensing fee can either work through um, an advance, mm-hmm. yeah, that you um, say to someone, "Look, I'm going to give you um, X amount. Let's let's just say like ten thousand dollars, and yeah. for that amount, you have to deliver um, four albums within this time frame, right? Um, and we will, you know, um, sell it in these territories. So mm-hmm. for someone, for a smaller label." Um, that money um, might be extremely important because it will help you create those records mm-hmm. without taking the artist away from your signing, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, you have a profit. Um, I'll buy a smaller one on the back end. Yeah, mm-hmm. after the um, deal is um, goes into the into the plus, right? Mm-hmm. And it you know gives your artist and a more international presence yeah mm-hmm. i mean, think what annihilator stuff like mm-hmm. that yeah? yeah um i think those deals were were struck and done and those were relationships that were there um, um you know that that case had mm-hmm. and it, it just benefited both sides mm-hmm. yeah? yeah yeah and i never felt that we were being that it was we could never have enough product yeah yeah Mm -hmm. because you know it was just putting it through i mean in amsterdam we had a very very big um um manufacturing um department yeah Mm -hmm. um people who oversaw back then it was you know nothing came digitally it was all like you you got the films for the art Right. Did everyone manufacture themselves, or was it Enelco at this point? Um, well, through these companies, right? Right, okay. But, yeah. you know, Whoever it was. It, yeah. it's, Rodan did not have its own manufacturing. Like right. That. Yeah. 
Um, but it was, you know, probably the Sony system in Holland, if I remember correctly. It certainly was you in know? the US when it was. It, yes. it, that's what Alan yeah. was telling me anyway. It was yeah. cheaper to, pro- yeah. to produce because initially they'd import it and then they'd push it from New York. Um, but, yeah. The whole printing it. side of things. I mean, uh, paper printing, right? It yeah. was, I believe, you know, I believe it was cheaper in Europe than it was in the U.S. The U.S. printing costs were always very, very high, right? So becoming a more international um, entity, um, it also offered you more opportunities to to do certain things. I mean, um, you know, in Europe, we were famous for releasing the Digipacks, you know, and um, it was something that in the U.S., nobody... You know, they were like, why would you do that? Who who will buy this? And we were like, there's a gigantic market out there for it. People right? who wear um, their CDs out because they've got shit CD players will come back and buy the... Uh... Well, that, and then you had bonus tracks on it. And it was, yeah. you know, it was, you know, there was a business, you know, mm-hmm. of course. You know, yes, people like, you know, were... You know, loved the artist and whatnot, but we were running a business. That yeah. was, you know, the primary thing. And um, as you know, the releases, as the artists um, um, took more hold and and, and got, you know, uh, more, more as as there was more feedback, right? Mm-hmm. You could take these artists. I mean, look, one of the big things for us is was was developing um, the international touring circuit for um, um, for our records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I mean, um, you know, to get, I remember like being in London at some point and talking to a lot of the um, agents and the only one that I remember, the only road on artist at that time that really had a top notch UK agent was Sepultura. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, they were working with, uh, Rod McSween at ITB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we then step by step, you know, Mark was involved. I mean, we, we, I was talking to Ian Sales, who was at um, Helter Skelter. Um, and Ian took on a whole bunch of uh, Roadrunner acts um, and um, was extremely successful with it because, you know, the growth had to come through both the recorded music side and the live presence. And yep. I mean, back then, don't forget, it was completely different than it is in this day and age today. Back then, the record companies were were king because they paid the uh, the touring advances. Yeah, and in this case, case had Blue Grape as well, who was setting up the t-shirt stands. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know that was um, um, you know that was um, Angelique and, and Felix Sebastius here on the on the New York side, mm-hmm. and um, you know they were creating all this stuff that people were buying left, right, and center. It was just. You know, until the majors caught on to this, I think it took years and years and years. And that's why you have these these you know, these metal armies out there, basically, you know, um, festivals. I mean, you know, Donington in the UK, it was we had Rock'em Ring, Rock'em Park in, 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 in Germany, Wacken, um, you know, all these these festivals. And they just turned into these monsters mm. Mm. that, you know, I think like 
what the last I heard was Wackenstall's out, whatever number of tickets they have, 60,000, let's say, within, you know, not even 24 hours. Yeah, it's a nightmare, mate. I can't go back. I haven't been back for 10 so, years. <laughs> the Wacken Festival puts the new tickets for the next year on sale once the final band goes off the stage. Yeah. Yeah, on, on a Sunday evening, right? Yeah. Um, and then by the morning, the tickets are gone. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, it's, it's crazy, you know? I'll, t- I'll tell you about my first Wacken experience another time, just because it was such a, a wonderful it was a wonderful time, um, especially for a 16-year-old. There's something you mentioned earlier. How are you doing for time, by the way? Because we've not even oh, got... I'm fine. Yeah? Brilliant. I'm Brilliant. fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've just like cleared the afternoon here. All good. You know how I, I roll, don't you? <laughs> Sometimes it goes <laughs> on. <laughs> you mentioned something which um, sparked something in my head, and it was about the printing cost between Europe and the US. I read an article from 1978, I think, with, with Case, um, having issue with parallel importing. Now, parallel importing would be effectively what we call nowadays piracy in a way, where uh, Sepultura's roots might come out in Europe, and then someone in the States will go, all right, it's not coming out for two months over here. I'll buy it for $30 over there rather than buying it for 45 just by an example, but rather than buying it for $45 over here. So when you said you could coordinate a worldwide release, that's actually massive, not only from a coordination perspective and a oh, brand perspective. Yes, yeah, yeah. You all of a sudden yeah. mitigated that risk enormously because it's not going to cost anyone. Uh, <laughs> no one yes. has any advantage buying from Europe when they don't need to anymore. Correct. So yeah. it was, um, you know, um, getting to that point and then, you know, talking to the artists and the management um, um, at that point and being able to deliver to them a worldwide release on a specific day. And, you know, um, if the, you know, if it, if it uh, product charted, like, let's say like a, a machine head right out of the gate, burn my eyes was a monster. Yeah. yeah. And it just charted everywhere. It's like, you know, as a manager, Joe Houston just got to see this and the band got to see, and they were like, Oh my God, you know? And so it was just one of those things that um, worked in, in our favor. Right. Mm. Um, to, I'll get people to, to, to look at Roadrunner and to see what Roadrunner was capable of. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. It's, it's, that, it's all that back-end stuff which I was talking about. Front-end on licensing is, you know, obviously you're making a little bit of money from someone else's product and it keeps everything busy. The back-end is, as I say, that kid in the shop seeing a Corrosion Conformity record in Germany and going, all oh, right, Roadrunner's the one for me because that gives you an extra $100 over the next five years. Yeah. It, it makes a difference if you'd multiply that experience by two, three continents. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, that was a very important piece. Um, In addition to, um, you know, delivering and coordinating worldwide, you know, or let's say for me, international marketing plans. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So while I was in Amsterdam, that was kind of like, you know, coordinate with everybody. This is the record that's coming. What are we going to do? Um, is everybody lined up in the right way? Do we have advertising in place? Do we have all this stuff? And then, which, you know, I did more than once, just presented a, a binder of documentation to managers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was very impressive because they weren't getting that anywhere else. 
It must have caused a lot of anxiety with that, though, because you're only as effective as your slowest component. And an international marketing plan on that scale must have a lot of components, which might it, have been a little bit. It did have a lot of, yeah, you start early, you know. <laughs> you start, I mean, it's nothing that comes together within a week's time. Yeah. 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 So, you know, um, you know, we knew what the priorities were for the year um, at the beginning of the year. Uh, because we had our plans uh, and obviously the focus was on um, direct signings to Roadrunner, unless it was something that was in the pipeline that was really big, um, that had to be handled in a very, very big way. Uh, Urban Discipline Biohazards Record was was that, because it wasn't the direct signing um, to uh, Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. It was a one-off, right? And Many, many discussions talked to Monty. I mean, Case was really dreading the fact that here's his company and, you know, he's getting one record um, because the band was already signed to a major, you know, um, at that point, because Lior Cohen wanted to um, give Biohazard Street credibility. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What better way to do it than through Roadrunner? But, you know, they basically then, I don't know what the terms were or anything like that, but it was a, a license to um, a Roadrunner, um, and uh, it was only one record. And I, I, I do like, I do want to say, I think it is still Biohazard's most successful record in their, in their you know, career. Catalog, yeah. And, um, you know, it was just a case did not like the fact that he was turning on the ignition of his machine wrote on a records for just a one-off. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people working at Roadrunner, you know, us, us young guys back then, we were just like, no, 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 we want that record. It's going to do so many great things for the label. Right. Mm. And, you know, it did. So it worked out for, for all sides, for, for, for everybody. And yeah. the inverse happened with Sepultura. I can't remember which, it might've been chaos. It might've been a rise. I can't remember where they wanted to go. They wanted to experience a major experience. I think they went with Epic for that album. Yes, it was, um, it was um, um, you know, an attempt, and um, it just did not deliver the results that um, Gloria and the band were um, expecting. Yeah? Um, yeah. Yeah, from, so I think, I speak to Richard. I, I believe that there was a change in, there was an A&R guy over there who was um, yeah. a, a bigwig, um, I think it was like the guy that signed Rage um, and, and others. And, um, uh, you know, it was, you know, in a way it was an artificial thing that was tried. It was, I think he left the company and um, before the record was released yep. and suddenly um, nobody, you know, <clears throat> felt no responsible for Sepultura. These were weird guys from Brazil. Right. And like, Oh my God, what do we do? Yeah. It's just like, um, it didn't, you know, work out to the level, I believe of what, um, Gloria and the band were expecting. And, um, you know, they came back and, um, it just went on from there because they knew, um, that they were much, much better taken care of at, um, at Broden, um, around the world. That the, the subterranean experience and the biohazard experience are both analogous as to what majors and indies uh, their attitude to the product is. I think 
Roadrunner did, did well with both because they knew what to do with the product because they dragged it from the fringe and put it in front of your face. Whereas I think majors are, well, if you're not going platinum, you're kind of not worth our time. And it's a well, I, I just, I, I don't think that, you know, I wouldn't deny or I wouldn't, um, um, you know, take it away from anybody working at a major um, mm. corporation um, that they have um, a love for specific artists and mm-hmm. really work extremely hard to um, to do that. But maybe we were a little bit freer and not just boxed in, in okay. the sense that um, we all had, I think, strong opinions and this, that, and the other. And the promotion person certainly had, um, you know, the right to you know, say something about the marketing or, yeah, or yeah. whatnot. It was, you know, these were, we all had like weekly marketing and promotion meetings in, in these companies, right? And so everybody that worked for the company was giving their input um, mm-hmm. for, you know, a, a, a national, regional, local level. Yeah. You know? And then um, um, that is um, how these records were released. And then on a, on a, on a higher level of, above it so to speak you had to coordinate um mm-hmm. all these activities you know um you had to coordinate. i mean it was just think about this you have a, a release um and um you need to know your release timing because um between um the the media hitting in one country uh, versus another it might be a completely different i remember that i mean in the u.s the lead times were massive i mean dramatic you had to start the promotion mm-hmm. really really early so that uh, because it was a, um, a printing issue right um because the magazines we were used to magazines in in, in europe that came out you know, like bi-weekly monthly mm-hmm. in the uk you had even like weeklies right and um it was a much much faster turnaround time so you had to coordinate like when when are we getting the artists like when when do we bring in typo for yep. the promo trip, right? Um, and all these all these elements. When do we um, have to purchase the advertising, right? Yeah. When when is all of this coming um, to uh, uh, coming in? Where are they going to tour first, right? Big battles over the touring activities, right? Mm-hmm. In the U.S., traditionally, you toured an artist or you still tour an artist before the record comes out. It's it's a vast vast country and. Um, you know, you probably couldn't play enough gigs before an album gets released. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, it's way different, I would say, because it's more um, driven by um, the the individual nation states, right? Yeah. So you go and you take a band into France. And sure, if you're, you know, if you get to a point where you can play four or five shows in France, that's great. But the real impact show is Paris. Yeah? You have yeah. to play in Paris. Back to Machine Head, London. They sold out Brixton Academy. You know, like it was nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. think about that. Um, you know, Germany was a little bit different because it had more more cities. You had, you know, between Berlin, Hamburg, Munich, Cologne, Frankfurt, um, um, a, a whole lot of stuff going on there. But um, you had to get the artists and the managers' attention to um, um, deliver dates that made sense for your campaign mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i was gonna i was gonna say obviously because i'm in the uk usually it's we're touring to support the album it's not we're touring in anticipation of the album 
sometimes it's even the album's coming out on a Wednesday and the tour starts that Wednesday night. That's yeah. that's been my experience anyway. Yeah, but yeah, that's well, it's, it's you know it's it's every every territory delivers or, or develops certain mechanics, yeah, and um, you have to kind of like get into the weeds there to figure out you know we had plenty of like battles you know the the germans versus the brits versus the dutch versus the french everybody wanted something right off the bat and be the first right and you know you couldn't like split a band into you know the individual members and then start everywhere at the same time it just you had to kind of gauge where it um where the where the sales would be primarily and back in those early days 90 you know the, the first half of, of the 90s it mm-hmm. was very much you know the sales were came from germany i mean it's it's just i mean germany has still to this day um a, a really great record store infrastructure i mean yeah. it's leaning but um you know the uk had it too but it just becomes more and more difficult in this day and age now to actually find a retailer that can physically take your product because mm-hmm. uh, you know a big chunk of business nowadays is done through amazon physically yep. right <laughs> let's go back to 1990 fucking two <laughs> so you, you in the cologne office um what's your role do you say it was the manager a general manager yes hired as a general manager for for the uh, for the office for the responsible for the german market we had you know responsible for a great deal of the marketing mm-hmm. um um we had um uh, you know promo people in there um yeah. we had um you know a, a small staff of people and then it was you know i was i traveled from cologne to stuttgart at least once a month you know right okay. because intercord our distributor was based in stuttgart and and it was a very very interesting um distribution um situation that we had there because they had what we called the big intercord so mm-hmm. the big intercord um was the machine that they had um that had the most salespeople, and so a sepultura record would go to the big intercord right they would press all the buttons and then they had the ir the you know um um yeah irs Intercord records. It, it was um, uh, the um, the kind of like the indie art. Mm. Yeah. and you know you just you begin to develop relationships with these people. Um, you have you know joint meetings. They have um, annual meetings that you know a case would come in for. We do presentations um, mm-hmm. and have an opportunity to really. I mean, amongst you know for a distributor, of course. I mean they have a vast variety of of product, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Intercord had like a lot of German language stuff, right? Um, they had classical stuff. They had so all these people are in there coming in with like their little like presentations, music, videos, and whatnot. And um, you know, we come in with heavy hitting urban <laughs> discipline, or you know, um, um, other things that were just like. And everybody in the room was, I mean, you know, it was. They liked us and we liked them. Um, it was, um, everybody was louder, louder. <laughs> so is, you're, you're, it was fun. Is it in that relationship and in, in the course of, of, of working with the distributor and the, the German market that you earned your chops as the international marketing 
guru and is that why case plucked you from that role and brought you to amsterdam i would say primarily um it was because frank strobley who i preceded who, who preceded me in the german office, left amsterdam and case needed someone right away to come in and um did, did frank how, leave the company or did he just leave yes amsterdam? he left the company he went right. to um i think he went to london to epic and you know it's just like flat out a conversation like he called me up and he said do you want to do this and i said yeah that's how we ended up doing this i moved to uh, to amsterdam mm-hmm. and suddenly had a um, you know a different role um and was uh, you know trying to um coordinate as i said all these aspects of releasing records um on a on a european level mm. and um, um streamlining things let's put it that way yeah yeah yeah. Was it the Van Egenstraat office or were we on the third office by this point? No, no, no. This was oof. the first office was in the city. Um, and, 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 um, and then the second was that I knew of that I experienced was um, in the, in the Biomar, um, closer to the airport. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. It was a freestanding low, size building amongst some high rises it was a weird you know location but it was gigantic for our purposes and um sure it was uh, you know we weren't um there's a lot of a lot of space we we weren't as constrained as we were in the in the other office but i mean that's just another signal how the company was growing yeah yeah because the offices in i mean i know about the german office more and a little bit about the Dutch office. I don't know if, um, but I think it was the same for, for Mark in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, as the company grew, as there was more and more, you needed more um, support, more people, more personnel. And yeah. for that, you needed space. So all of these offices, you know, weren't, you know, in the same spot for mm-hmm. all this time. You There were, there were you know, office moves and and. Um, into into different you know areas into into larger properties to um, deliver what you know was was needed and necessary. It makes sense that it was near the airport as well. If cases fly to New York every two weeks and then Japan once a year. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, you know, that was um, um, obviously a very um, in, in Amstel vein of a very important aspect of it. Um, but you know, we had so many people that that were just flying all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Were you working at Amsterdam when Bloody Kisses went gold? Yes. So did you get to receive the party, the, the welcome party of the um the IR? No, it was then Sony Red at that point, wasn't it? Oh, I was so- much involved in that. <laughs> I was like, you know, the case was like, listen, you know, you know most of these people or many of them. It's just like I invited them. They're all coming, so <laughs> sort it out. <laughs> and then you know there were like i don't know like 30 people probably right maybe more yeah. Yeah. and you know we had to arrange for for dinners right so you had to again you had to um you know here you go so you're you're dealing with you know music and record releases and whatnot and suddenly you're tasked with finding restaurants um, and rooms that were big enough um, and, and, and menus and, and all that and translated from Dutch to English so that all these people, you know, could, could figure it out. And at the same point, you know, at the same time, we had invited the Type O members. Of course, yeah. yeah. 
Not even never, so, never even occurred to me for some reason. <laughs> Fair no, enough. No, no, of course. But it was just, <laughs> I mean, um, it was very, very funny because um, um, the the two that came with their wives were Kenny and John. Yeah. Um, yep. Peter and um, Josh stayed home. Um, they did not come. Um, I mean, look, for Peter, it was always difficult anyway um, um, because he was he was not comfortable with um, the different types of foods in different places because he was very much a, when he was traveling in Europe, very much a McDonald's guy because you know? mm-hmm. uh, he knew what he was getting and that's where he wanted to, to go. And, you know, here you are, you're, you know, your company is doing well, you've got some funds, you've got some money, like to take you out for, you know, da, 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 dinners and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but no, he wanted to, uh, you know, the, the food that he knew that he was comfortable with. He wanted his nuggets and he wanted to watch TV and... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the, Peter was a very unique character and, and unique guy, yeah. you know? And um, they toured Europe many, many times and mm. it was always like, super exciting you know and um you know i became really good friends for a certain period of time with josh um but i think you know once everybody started having kids it was you know your concentration goes somewhere else you know? yeah totally um, but um you know despite of all the stuff that's being written in the in the you know press at the time and now about how you know the typo guys hated roadrunner um, I didn't see that, you know, I, I think that was, you know, they, they were very, very happy. I, I know that Josh had a very special relationship with Case. Um, mm-hmm. um you know, they talked, uh, uh, over the phone a lot. Pete was always like this character that had to be bigger. He had to live up to his character all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, larger than life because, you know, he was so, um, tall in stature. Um, that it was, um, you know, it was, it was different. I'm sure that, you know, they didn't like, you know, the fact that certain things happened in the end. Um, and, you know, they, they subsequently, you know, left Roadrunner. But, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, the Roadrunner, you know, marketing and promotional staff around the world was instrumental in, in helping get this record out to as many people as, as it did. Now, obviously there's, you know, you can't do it without the artist and the music. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people pulling in the same direction at the same time um, is a really important thing. It was a coordinated effort by cases design. It was, um, I was speaking to Jim Salaby, who was obviously the head of sales in New York at the time. And he literally sat Jim down and, and went over the roster and went, right. I want a gold record in the next like 18 months. Jim, draw me a plan. And obviously Jim's a guy that would go, okay, well, your most viable asset in this regard is going to be typo. And then the build it from there. So it's so, it's so interesting to me that, because I think like the conventional music industry stories is just like either the label is just a, massive bloke with a cigar behind a desk exploiting the artist or is absolute anarchy and kids running around. But here is a complete structure, a complete yeah. structure, a complete well, I mean, campaign. Just, I can't even, you know, I, I, I can't even describe it. It was a, a whole bunch of, of young people, um, both male and female coming together in this company and then growing with the company 
and obviously, um, you know, doing a lot of things in the, in the right way. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. case giving people a lot of, which I think he really did, um, a lot of leeway to do what needed to be done. Right. I remember case for his speeches a lot. Yeah. He was, um, someone that could rally the troops and focus people, um, at these international meetings in, in a, in a way that I've never, ever come across anybody that can speak in front of a, a group of young people in that way, in that sense, giving them, applauding their efforts and giving them direction and rallying, you know, the troops, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. He was fantastic when it came to his speeches um, that, that he had, you know, he had to give um, on, on many occasions, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that made you, I mean, he was also like, because he was older than all of us, right? Mm-hmm. He was also a, a fairly stern taskmaster. Yeah. He wanted things done a certain way and um, mm-hmm. you had to either um, do it that way or, um, or, you know, you were in trouble. Right. But I always experienced him. Like I, I had a lot of, you know, uh, leeway we we were very very successful with a lot of things that we um that we did um lots of artists that that grew it was i mean you know we were all lucky yeah lucky in the sense that it was the right time for the music and lucky in the sense that we ended up um you know working at this place called roadrunner records in, in uh, around the world in, in different offices mm. um you know kind of doing the same thing yeah yeah, because I mean, look, look at where the people ended up. I mean, Stéphane Sonnier ended up at Canal Plus in Paris uh, with his own TV show. Yeah, Mark is Nuclear Blast together with uh, you know with with what Monty's doing right now. Yep, um, with and, half the road and the roster. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, and that roster only became available because you know what the the major Roadrunner turned into, mm. or what they what they um, you know it was it's it's different. Mm. It's the Roadrunner from back. The Roadrunner that I remember is um, most certainly different from um, uh, what it is now. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so while you're the international marketing um, leader in Amsterdam, were there any particular records that you found challenging? I was looking at my list here and I'm thinking Frontline Assembly was quite for the time quite enigmatic and it was it was i think i remember speaking to gary levermore um who obviously the third mind records which yeah. was frontline assemblies was a kind of baby and he thinks that case wanted him to sign the next nine inch nails so there's clearly an angle to that i'm just wondering if the european market responded to that that industrial sound um not that i recall to um to to that degree i mean my time in Amsterdam, you know, the, the Dutch Gaba dance scene, um, Mokum records, um, all that stuff was running parallel to our, um, rock and metal stuff. Yeah. Mm. And that took up a lot of oxygen, but again, you were like, you know, I was in Amsterdam. That's where this stuff was happening. Yeah. And, um, and it is, there's only so much concentration and, and time you can dedicate to something. And 
very often when it comes to um, specific signings, it's it's all about they have to prove themselves in their local market mm, first okay. before you even look at them from an international point of view, right? Because, yeah. you know, if they can't make it at home, then, you know, why are you even contemplating doing something with them in a foreign territory where nobody knows, them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, um, no, it just, at that time, for me, it was, you know, the, the, the big acts that I was always dealing with, that we were always, that, that we had at the forefront of our minds, was Sepultura, Typo Negative, Life of Agony, Doggy Dog for us in Europe, um, yep. uh, Fear Factory, Machine Head. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some here, but those were the, the that's the, the core that's the spine of Roadrunner at that time. Mm. Yeah. I was gonna, also going to ask about Brugera, just because the antithesis of what you were saying there in terms of you have these big acts that you're front and center of. Brugera was kind of designed to be underground in a way, wasn't it? Oh, of <laughs> it course. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, you're not going to tell Alan Becker, look, we're going to want 60,000 of these units. No, this is going to be a very, very niche uh, product that we're going to put but it out. was I remember that you had to here in the in the US um, that cover had to be covered um, there was some like a black box that was over it so you couldn't see the actual cover whereas that sold it wouldn't it surely that's what kids yeah. want well whereas in Europe you didn't have to do that and it just like you know you just sell it you know yeah it was just like I mean these were all like these Monty signings and all these um, the, the, like you know, the awesome, like the nail bombs and, and other things that um, came through, mm. um, and it was you know, for us, I mean, it was literally just let's sell this, sell it, sell it, sell it, right? Yeah. So the sales aspect was a very, very big dominating um, piece of the whole enterprise. Um, this this question specifically about Fear Factory is kind of I'm trying to articulate it, but it's difficult to articulate. I'm at a point now where I'm looking at Dino and I'm looking at his career with Roadrunner. And I'm thinking he was so on board from like day one. It feels like he like he lived and it felt like he lived and breathed Roadrunner as a brand. And I feel like he really wanted to deliver for you guys. I just get that impression, but I have no means to articulate or prove that. Is that something? Am I kind of am I on the right lines of how that band managed their relationship with the label? Were they really always trying to deliver? Or were they going through the motions of, oh, we're going to have an album cycle. Oh, the label wants this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I think that's something special. That would be a question that, you know, most likely Monty could could answer much, much better than I could. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was um, something that had a spark um, that worked. The press was behind it. The media was behind it. And we were able to um, sell it. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, you can't, you, you don't, other than maybe like A&R people, um, you can't develop a personal relationship with each and every one of these artists that come yeah. through. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're closer to some than you are to others. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, um, you're professional, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. But it is, uh, you know, something where, you know, I mean, Fear Factory and festival stuff, I remember, you know, they were always, you know, there, they toured and, and um, you know, um, 
but it wasn't, I couldn't answer that question that you asked me. <laughs> no, it's I cool. Just, it's, I think it's, I just don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, I mean, I'm always going about how Roadrunner brings up the fringe and it makes it commercially viable and things like that. But I think like with Dino and with Fear Factor, there is an arc to how that sound was developed. And I feel like Roadrunner had a big part to play in it, but you are right. It is an A&R question at its roots. So let's move forward a little bit. Um, what summoned you to New York? Oh, my desire to, at that time, I had been um, in Amsterdam, I think, for like three years. Um, right. And um, I um, had asked Case. So my whole thing was I wanted to move to London. Yeah. And continue working for Roadrunner. I wanted to um, just set up a small little desk in Mark Palmer's office and, and do international from there. Right. Okay. And um, the reason being is that all the larger entities, larger record companies had their international offices in London, right? Mm -hmm. And we were in Amsterdam and it was like off the beaten track, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, in, in a way. I mean, the artists, of course, loved Amsterdam for many, many reasons, but I wanted to move um, and um, uh, move to London. I asked Case and Case was like, nope under no circumstances. I'm not like not having another, you know, um, department, whatever you wanted to call it international um, based out of, out of London. Right. We, we, we do that here. And I, I, I presume it's I'm, just cause he wants oversight. It's not for no other yes, reason. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I work very, very closely with case for um, a long period of time and um, you know, offices next to each other and, and, you know, short ways of communicating and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, and it was his suggestion, right, at that point. I said, I want to get out of Amsterdam. I just, like, I feel I need to move on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was his suggestion um, at that point um, to then say, like, well, what about New York? And, you know, you, you'll you do that stuff out of the New York office because, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm there every other week anyway. Um, so that's not that much of a difference for me because i mean international goes on in in amsterdam mm -hmm. for europe when he's in new york and and vice versa mm -hmm. and i just jumped at that opportunity of course yeah okay you know moved my whole life um, out of amsterdam and um, um um arrived in amsterdam um the the day of um, um diana's passing princess diana's passing it was, um, you know, I drove to the airport in the morning early and there was all this uh, stuff on the radio mm -hmm. and um, got on the plane and then um, um, got off in, um, you know, at JFK and um, drove through the city, um, you know, into the city from, from JFK. And um, they had put up all these like little, I don't know, almost like shrines to her. Mm. Um, in the little bodegas outside and flowers and pictures and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'll remember just that. Just because I know exactly where I was the See, day you, it's you know. It's one of those moments, right? It's, it's one of those things that you just remember. And yeah. um, um, so that was my, um, my arrival in, um, in New York. But I had been to New York so many times prior sure. to that, yeah, because, um, you know, we had, lots of meetings here, you know, the meeting with, you know, the company meeting with managers, meeting with artists and, and, you know, trying to be on top of what, you know, what I said before, like this, this coordination or coordinating effort 
mm-hmm. to um, streamline what was happening. So when you go to New York, is your role the same or is it we're now moving out of Europe and it's a different coordination? Yeah, it's basically in Europe, I did it on a European level and in New York, I did it, I think it was still more of a European level, but based out of New York, it was the New York office. I mean, you know, those guys did what they needed to do. And, mm. you know, we sat together in the, in the management meetings and discussed timelines and, and whatnot and, uh, you know, sorted that out. But at that point, you know, after Bloody Kisses and the success that came with that, um, yeah. the New York office just um, took on a different um, a different air because these were their artists. And yeah. now that they had proven that they could deliver in in a way that um, hadn't happened before, mm-hmm. um, then, of course, it became all about what they wanted. And so the tide turned, you know, it flipped. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever find yourself carrying out stunts from a publicity and marketing perspective? Was there any, any kind of shtick that you ever went for? I'm just saying this because uh, I know Case did that in his earlier career. And yeah, I'm just I know, if any no, of that rubs off on you. Not in that sense. No, no, no. I think like what I enjoyed working together with the production teams on creating very, very special product. I mean, if you remember the um, the wooden box uh, for Sepultura's Roots, um, did you ever see that one? No, I'm a, I was just a little boy. You got to look that one up. That was yeah. a piece of um, that was a piece of art that we did not sell, but I think we made I don't know if I remember correctly, maybe two hundred of those, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it just encapsulated, I think, in a really really cool way, the Brazilian nature of Sepultura and this um, this uh, release um, with all the stuff that we have and. I mean, these boxes sell for insane amounts of money on, you know, eBay and sure. wherever um, at this point. But mm. um, no, it was just like taking something like that and and trying to um, enhance it and and do something either for, you know, these boxes were handed out to distribution partners. Mm-hmm. Um, they were handed out to, um, you know, media partners, mm-hmm. important media partners, um, and um, just a handful of people. I guess there's no stunts involved, but it's value. It's value. It's, it's, it's biggest it bang is for value. your it's just like, It also shows the people that are on the receiving end of something like this, um, the, um, you know, the, the dedication to the project, the dedication to the artist that mm-hmm. you as a representative of this company um, have. Right, mm-hmm. um, because you're not giving it to anybody and everybody. It's just a very select few people, and yeah. you know, in a way, is it like you know, it's not like a bribe or anything like that. But if you got that, you know, you knew that it was expected that you know there was some kind of um, uh, you know support for the artist that, that went above yes. and beyond what normally would would be the case. Yeah, yeah. So you're just like, you know, you're using the tools of, of what is available. And and that, I have to say, again, I mean, that's, you know, case for you right there. There's never an idea like that, that he kind of like shot down because he was, oh, that's like, that's nonsense. Yeah. Not at all, you know, it was, um, um, you know, that was 
part of the whole part of the whole thing. I find Case interesting as a obviously hearing from other people about the kind of leader he was because there's there's the spectrum is always as I say he was a very hard taskmaster. You want to do things in a specific way, and he wasn't too, he wasn't afraid of calling you out for underperforming. But at the same time, there's another one where he's also really keen on developing his staff and he's really keen on making sure everyone's comfortable and happy. And a lot of the time it's, look, deliver for me and I'll get out of your way. That seems to be like the the ethos. And a lot of people walk away thinking, well, I say thinking, a lot of people walk away having cases like a almost paternal figure. And it's a lot, in a lot of these interviews, a lot of people say that, that he's a father figure. Did you get that impression? Oh, I think absolutely. I think, I mean, he was, I looked up to, he was the first really successful um, businessman that mm. I had met um, and um, someone that, um, you know, talk about being in demand on a daily basis because he was fielding phone calls from around the world yeah, every day. Yeah. Um, and he had to, at the drop of a dime, switch from that problem to that problem <laughs> and know what he was like talking about and know what he wanted. So it was very, uh, you know, I often wondered, you know, how he managed and to, I had a time where I was flying between New York and Amsterdam um, every other week. Mm-hmm. And it just blew my mind. It was so, so difficult at the beginning. You know, at first you're like, mm-hmm. man, this is cool. This is like the jet set lifestyle. But after like a month of doing it, six weeks, you're going like, where am I? You know, and um, he was um, greatly involved and, um, and enjoyed, you know, this this business of Roadrunner and uh, developing this this company. And I think he had um, he had a plan. He had vision. Yeah. And he, you know, kind of. But I mean, think about it too. It's like you know, as the company grew, as more and more people came into work at these roadrunner companies, um, you know, Case still tried to understand who was who everywhere, but yeah. um, it wasn't like, you know, back in those days and, and, and the early days, I mean, it was different for me because he knew who I was, I knew who he was, and I can kind of like, you know, I could figure out what kind of mood he was in, basically, right? Because yeah. we were working together um, in the same um, office um, and um you know, talking about the same things. Yeah, yeah. It's but it was also, I mean, it, it went so, I mean, it was, I remember like, you know, spending a lot of weekends um, in, in the office um, with, um, you know, Case coming in at some point or already being there. And, and it always, these weekends allowed me to have very, very uh, intense and interesting conversations with Case about where he wanted to take something, right? Mm-hmm. To, to kind of like, get into his head a little bit yeah, and um, also to um, explain, you know, where the problems were that, that I saw. I mean, what if it, if it meant we had one situation, I, I don't even remember what it was anymore, but it was, um, uh, you know, it was a typo related thing. And it was, I think it was a touring thing um, because the, the Pete had said he did not want to come to, to Europe on the, festival tours and whatnot. Um, and it was just one of those things where Pete was just like, really, you know, just like didn't want to do it. And mm-hmm. I said, listen, I just like, I feel like I need to fly over there and talk to him. Right. Mm-hmm. And case was just 
fine, you know, I'm playing, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, so I'm flying into some place in Texas, right? And get to, um, um, you know, um, talk to the band and, and um, help sort things out, you know, and, and fly back. So it mm. was, that's what I mean. It's just, I had so much um, leeway. Yeah. In, um, in in doing a lot of these these things, and um, it was um, it was fun to work there. It really was. Ed Von Sell said, um, "Case would if two days before going to New York on any given day, he'd have lunch on New York time just to prepare himself." Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, absolutely, easily makes sense. Did you attend Dynamo nineteen ninety five? Yes. So to me, I've asked a few people about Dynamo 95. <clears throat> None of them can tell me anything because they can't remember what happened. <laughs> but all I know is that anyone talking about Dynamo 95 is full of like heartfelt platitudes and great memories and how it was a big moment for the label. And I think it might be something to do with the fact that more than 50% of the lineup, especially on the Saturday, was a Roden, were all Rodenracks, and they all went down really well. So I don't know if it was... In, in your head, why was it a milestone? Was it because... We controlled the backstage area to a degree. We had Roadrunner <laughs> umbrellas. I mean, these gigantic, massive umbrellas, and we had bars set up. We had, like, anybody and everybody. We had passes for everybody we had backstage access it was done in a we were away from where um the um uh, the artist backstage area was right mm -hmm. so that was a separate area but we had set this thing up and then of course when you have this i mean i, I don't know it's just it was a once in a lifetime event yeah to have that many artists and to have a hundred thousand people out there mm -hmm. right that were all there to see your, you know, your artists or to, to a large degree. I mean, you were inviting, I mean, think about it. At that time, we still had different distributors in each European country, right? You would extend an invitation to people to come in and join you. And, and it was just like, it was, it was a gigantic, um, you know, um, fest backstage. And we had, you know, access to the stage i mean look at the video you know it's yeah. like you see all these people on the on these stages and, and on on two levels you know and it was just you know nobody stopped us you know the security knew who we were <laughs> and it was just like, I was trying to like, I've been looking into it and trying to play the angle of, oh, it's a milestone moment for the label because it's probably the, this, the first time there's so many acts that are there together. There was, there was a lot of groundbreaking performances and then there was some, perhaps, maybe I should check SoundScan or something and see what, how that did for the performance. It actually created more sustenance for the brand. But now you're coming in and saying, nah, we just got shit-faced in our own little bit. <laughs> Everybody got, it was just like, you know, um, it was, you know, there are so, so many like, you know, funny stories that happened at these festivals. It is just, I mean, you would go and, and hang out, you know, all day long. Right. Because, yeah. you know, of course, if, if you had a baby act that was performing and playing early on, mm. it didn't mean that you couldn't show up, you know, you had to be there you know, mm. um, to, to, because that was the whole thing. Every, you know, 
you supported the bands that that were on the label and that were there. And if if it means that you had a baby act that was performing at you know two o'clock in the afternoon, potentially when the festival was starting, or noon or whatever, mm. um, and you'd had like you know a really 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 late night, um, didn't matter. You know people were there, people showed up. It was yeah. um, it was that kind of a thing. But nine oh ninety five was. I mean the crowd was just I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it again was Danimo still arranged by is his name Anders who works for Hard Shock magazine was that still his baby at that point that I don't know mm-hmm. I thought it was Rob Trumlin mm. Mojo I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know the early Dynamos were Anders from Hard Shock. I, I don't know. I could be. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, look, the, the, the metal world came together in Eindhoven um, at this place, took over the city, which it, it's a small town, right? Mm-hmm. But it combined, it delivered a lot of like, um, you know, economic um, um, earnings potential for the people that, you know, run businesses there, be it, yeah. you know, food or overnight or, or whatever. Did you have like crazy stuff happening? Um, you know, drunk metal kids, stoned metal kids, like peeing in someone's garden. I am sure that there was like you know tons and tons and tons of stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Or crashing into um, a, a a garden fence or whatever. You know, it's but it all it was it was Holland. It was yeah. um, you know um, it was very you know very easygoing. Mm-hmm. And then it yeah. just got too big and it was just, um, you know, it was, um, they had to move it. So, but that dynamo with everything that went on there, there were other dynamos before and, and after, you know, where we had a lot of artists. There was a time frame, a time period where that festival was so meaningful in Europe um, mm-hmm. and all of our roadrunner acts, um, uh, you know, sometimes more um, than, um, other times came through and, and performed yeah 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 no it's interesting i'll have to keep plugging away and see what else what else you know, case was always there you know it was i mean you know case always came he was always there he did the rounds um you know he didn't you know he obviously he didn't drink or or anything you know he he was just there he saw the performances um you know he was, you know, the, the, the figurehead for all of this. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's bring this train into the station because I've, yeah. <laughs> I've nicked two hours of, uh, of your time. Um, so how did your relationship with Rodana end? How did you move on? I think um, it kind of got into a situation where I went to New York and um, I don't think that case was very um, happy and secure with how the, the, the international side of the European business was developing with me having left. And, um, you know, he then came to me and said, like, listen, I need you on both sides. You got to, you know, if you're, you, you need to come back. He, that was the first thing he said. And I said, case, I just moved my whole life to here. I'm, I'm not going back. Right. And it was the first time I think really that I said no to him. Mm. Um, and, um, I then started, you know, flying back and forth like crazy. Um, and, um, 
Um, you know, back in those days, I um, was a chain smoker, right? Um, did not live a very um, healthy lifestyle. And I ended up, um, you know, um, having heart problems and getting very sick. Right. And so the combination of um, all of that happening and, um, you know, probably a whole bunch of, you know, situations um, that um, it's, it's, it's difficult to explain um, why this whole thing, you know, ended. Um, I, there was a certain time um, where, you know, Case and I went and had lunch. He said to me, like, come on, let's have lunch. And we sat down and I looked at him and I said, so this is it, right? And, you know, he's like, yeah. <laughs> and we were just like, okay. So this is it, you know. It's just sometimes things run um, their course. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever have the pleasure of attending one of the Christmas parties? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, lots of Christmas parties, um, specifically here in, in, uh, in New York. Um, I mean, there's, you know, plenty of, of, of stories to go around, be it Scott Givens um, uh, you know, um, a punch bowl, um, which was basically a trash can, a gigantic metal trash can where, you know, they just, it was filled with alcohol and it was just mixed together. It was just like, you know, whatever, whiskey and vodka and, and, and everything was just poured into this thing. And everybody was, I mean, the Christmas parties at Rhoda, especially like the later ones were, I mean, gigantic, right? Because Rhoda was one of, Rhoda in the US was one of the last companies that still did Christmas parties. Yeah. So the whole metal community in New York descended upon the Roadrunner offices mm -hmm. um, and um, you couldn't get through the front door. Last question. I've been striking out on this one for the last 10 interviews or so, but I'm still holding the faith. Have you ever seen a ghost? Have I seen a ghost? Nope, I have not. Okay. That's another, stri <laughs> <laughs> That's another strikeout. Like, yeah, okay, what do we do with the ghost question? I'm just going to be like, you know, after like all this time, straight up, nope. <laughs> nah, it's cool. It's cool. I'm, I'm going to get, go. I've got, I've, I've got an, enough, enough ghost stories, both written and verbal, that I can put them, I can collate them all into like the ghosts of Roadrunner. There you like go. Video or something like that. So I'm, I'm going to try and do that, but... I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. No, well, thank you very much, Stefan. That was real. That was awesome. We went into, we picked so many lanes, which are exactly. I don't know if like you picked up on, you know, say the previous podcast where you're like, oh, this guy is like talking about the business side of it. Most of it.